Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Treehouse, episode 57, Brown Windsor Soup, with Danny Baker and me, Louise Pepper. Yes, it is, and uh, I just wish the, uh, the very good people listening to us now had heard this hijinks and fun and games <laughs> by which we bring you the show today. Now, it's not going to be one of those where you have to roll your eyes and say, oh, the, the backstage things of interest to people in media, but it really was tremendous. Uh... <laughs> Fully 45 minutes just pushing buttons or certainly... Uh, oh, crumbs. Resetting passwords uh, pointlessly. Yeah. And, and not because... And I found out because I sit here, of course. I've sit, I've been sitting here inflating balloon and letting it down amusingly. I'll give you just just the flavour of what you've been missing while we before we've actually been edited out. I've been sitting here while they've been discussing the most technical terms it sounded to me in the world. And I've been doing this... <sighs> Soothing, isn't it? That that's a balloon. <laughs> How about that? How about between that? You and between that? you and Phil's coughing cat. <laughs> it's honestly you. When, when we go to the when we when we uh, go to the Patreon thing, that'll all be extras. That's what you've got to look forward to. And then I turn around. So what is the problem? Well, at the moment we can only record forty minutes. I said that's brilliant. We start by saying the show will cut off after 40 minutes then go hell for leather to try and do it in that time. And if it didn't, the show would have just stopped. And I think it would have been amusing. A very good morning to everybody. Uh, 40 minutes now. That is Louise Napoleon Pepper, the uh, great granddaughter of Ho Chi Minh on the other side of London. Uh, and not only that, she's a, a trooper. Because I happen to know from a couple of weeks ago, you told me your feet are full of corns. And, oh, don't. Uh, I mean, what a mortifying... It's a revolting thing. Oh, crap. The There's something thing. wrong with my foot, I said to my parents when I was there. Yeah. I don't know what's happened. Mm. My dad had a look at me. You've got it, corns. It's corns? It's revolting, isn't it? Uh, uh, the uh, um, And so painful. When you all have access to my diary, which is about a thousand words a day, and, and I've, I've put my H on my H here, I think it's one of some of the funniest stuff I've ever written. There's a whole saga about a corn that I hope is, is, is written well enough so it's not absolutely disgusting. But uh, that again all to look forward to uh, this morning uh, we're going to pretend we're up against the clock we're not but I'll tell you this I'll, I'll mm -hmm. tell you this Louise Napoleon Pepper uh, uh, Theopolis Man uh, Connell 
uh, or Colonel, uh, Theopolis Van Colonel, invented the revolving door in 1888. Yes, he invented the revolving door. Uh, and he only ever invented one other thing. Uh, a revolving door, you might think. That's enough. enough. You might think that's enough. In his patent, in his patent for the revolving door, he described it as three radiating equidistant wings, providing with weather strips and equivalent means to ensure a snug fit. The door possesses numerous advantages over a hinge door. It is perfectly noiseless. It effectively gets rid of any trace of wind, snow, rain or dust. Moreover, the door cannot be blown open by the wind. There is no possibility of collision. And yet persons can both pass in and out at the same time. And that's a perfect... I mean, when you hear it like that, you say, what an innovation it was. I mean, that is an amazing thought process. It was invented by... uh, to uh, Sorry to be quite so dreary here and give the actual truth of it. It was invented for department stores because other, they, they needed a way that customers wouldn't leave the door open and their heating or mm. would, would but so they invented the revolving door but uh, after two months there was some research done to see whether they were a success and it said late, later research shows that while preferring uh, the, the, the building owners preferring the energy conservation revolving doors may be avoided by some people due to their perceived greater physical effort in using them <laughs> People talking to us too much. Got you. Well, you got to push it all the way around. No thanks. <laughs> three doors. I'm going to push three doors. People were suspicious of revolving doors, but I, I will say this: uh, in America, uh, in, in New York particularly, some of the bigger stores have huge revolving doors where hmm. about ten people at a time uh, can shuffle around in one oh. of the little quarters i don't like those no because they have the sensor ikea has them as well they? and they have an overly sensitive thing that if someone gets oh. slightly too close to it it just it stops <laughs> and then you're all it's worse you're all just stuck no, together the, the oh. bbc i don't know why i was saying this the bbc has those the bbc uh, one took my toenail off that, that man alive and you didn't bring a class action suite. honestly i hobbled out and i said to the three burly chaps on the reception can one of you look at my toe? I can't bear to look. And they all went, oh, no. Oh, blood, no. My <laughs> heroes. Honestly. Oh, no, they are at oh. 5%. And, 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 yeah, we, we may talk about revolving doors for 45 minutes. What do you want? The show's for nothing at the moment. Uh, and but you, the, Approaching the, the little section you get in is good, but then you have to do that odd little thing with your feet when you shuffle around. <laughs> You approach it, you know, a steady... I take it back. Terrible invention. Awful man. It is a terrible invention. You you approach it a steady 15 knots and then have to throw the anchor over to suddenly go around at about three knots until you've eventually sprung on the other side. But I don't like the ones you share with other people. And that's got nothing to do with the current climate. I don't (laughs) like a revolving door to have all of us going around in it. There's a there's a whiff of the Orwell about it. I, I don't particularly like. So anyway, our friend, our friend uh, 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 Theopolis Van Connell, I think, there's in a the, the day, uh, invented the revolving door. But if, uh, reading on, as I like to, it says um, the only other invention in his lifetime that was a success was the witching waves. And there's a little, it's in blue on Wikipedia, so you can click and see what the Witching Waves is. The Witching Waves was an amusement ride. It was first introduced at Coney Island in 1907, invented by Theopolis Van Cannell. The ride consisted of a large oval course with a flexible metal floor. There were hidden levers that produced a wave-like motion. The floor itself did not move, but the moving wave propelled small scooter-like cars with two riders each that could be steered. 
In 1910, it was installed in the Bowery, and sometimes accidents were common. <laughs> uh, Witching Waves was also installed another amusement park in Blackpool, England. During the 1930s, the English poet John Betjeman, in his uh, description of St. Giles's Fair, said, The whole of St. Giles is sick with freak shows, roundabout cakewalks the whip, and the witching wave. Very few says the film can be seen at Luna Park in the silent movie Coney Island with Roscoe Arbuckle and Buster Keaton. And that's the same fella who invented the revolving door. Hats off to him. But one other just quick one here. Um, it says a uh, Tor Heyerdahl. You know Tor Heyerdahl? Oh, yes, a Contiki. That's it. I'm so glad you know that because the chasm between it. We start the show. You know, this isn't the show. This is, uh, this is us um, uh, uh, keeping the show at bay, <laughs> in case it doesn't work. Uh, uh, Tor Heyerdahl, I, I didn't know because of the chasm in our ages, whether you'd know him, and mm, Contiki. Just about. I think I'm probably the last sort of age group who would know. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's, his big uh, gag was in... Um, no, not big gag. He's, 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 <laughs> he, he, float, he floated the Contiki from uh, Peru to Polynesia to prove that the Incas could do it. Contiki mm. is the name of an ancient in in Inca god. Uh, and he made it a, it's, see, I was, he was famous for, the boat was made of balsa wood. Right? Yes. Which is strange. But he said, I want to prove that they could have done this and peopled the Polynesian islands. So I'm going to go from Peru, six of them on it. It's a big old raft uh, to, to the Polynesian islands using only uh, materials and technology available at the time. Fine. And then I read down and it said uh, he was aided by a radio sextant charts, uh, some watches and metal knives. Well, come on. Come on, Tor. You might as well have booked yourself on the QE2. That, that's not the spirit in my... 101 days Even later. strictly sundials. No, exactly. Uh, oh, I want to prove they can do it. Oh, better pack a few things, though. And a radio and a sextant and charts. I don't, I don't think, you know, busy with sacrificing as they were. They would, they would have approved of that. What are we doing today, Peps? Number one, your first time in a cinema. Number two, mad things in the middle of nowhere. Number three, unbelievable but true excuses. And number four, something you've done once but never would again. Thank you very much for all your responses to these. What was your first time in the cinema, Peps? Did I ask you? I that? think it was something pretty boring like the Care Bears movie or My Little Pony. <laughs> I, I, I do remember that everyone stood up and, and did um, the Superman song together. You know, Hitch a Ride. I've no idea what you're talking about. Oh, you do? Uh, know no, that. I don't. This is like me asking you to name the tracks on the Doobie Brothers. Have I found the track? one song that is not in your collection. No, no, anything it's after called 19... Superman. After and 19... That's Laurie Anderson. Oh, Sue. No, not that. Yeah. So people are shouting. No, they're not. Not to my age, they're not. They, they're they're, they're saying the world was all downhill. They're Zeppelin 4 is what they're saying. They might have been Black Lace that mm, did it. Well, uh, so it, it's of the ilk of your agadoos, but right. you all sort of... It, so he shouts out things this? and you all have to do them. What film so Comb it? your hair. Take a walk. Look at what's the, the, the film. This is not this is not your Rogers and Hammerstein. It's barely uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. What film was that in it? Well, it wasn't. They just put it on before the film started, <laughs> and everyone got up and did it. Oh, and I was. I thought this was wonderful. Oh. Everyone together doing the dance. I thought, I thought it was, it was like a Rocky Horror Show. I saying it was in the film, and everyone got up and did that. Over here, the Nutty no. Professor. Did you see Wendy's? Did you, see? you said, what was it you said it, it was? was it? I thought Wendy would have said, Wendy's a couple of years older than me, and uh, I, knowing Wendy as I do, I thought she'd have said it would have been Thomas Senior, the cat, uh, uh, or possibly uh, Darby O'Gill and the little people, uh, uh, possibly a Disney revival like Cinderella. Hmm. I said, 
What was your first film when? And she did Miss Beach went, me, how the West was one. <laughs> that is the funniest thing she's ever said. But she went, what's the matter with you? I said, what? What were you doing in a sprawling three-hour, macho-dripping, uh, cinerama, slog like how little, um, my brothers took me to it when i was gonna say there's a brother or a dad involved in that decision brother, they talked to see how the, she was like six and sitting there how the west was won <laughs> it is by all accounts like one of the most bloated overblown epics ever made poor little wen sitting there trying to make it or tell of henry fonda hunting down buffalo uh anyway so that, that we've got various other responses to that uh, give us give us some from your end peps uh, this is Things in the Middle of Nowhere. This is Steve Ambrose. A van load of us were travelling across Dartmoor and pulled up for a brew. We parked just off the side of the road and lit up a camping gas stove for the kettle. Oh, that's my childhood. And as the water boiled, we made the pot of tea and realised we had no milk. At that moment, eight cows came past. And our friend Gina, he says, from Malibu, calmed a cow, sat on a stool, and milked the cow for a couple of pints. In the meantime, a couple of tourist coaches passed with bewildered passengers staring at the spectacle of a line of people standing behind a milkmaid for the milk for their tea. Wow, well, that, that, that is a skill. Who's that fella called um, uh, uh, who goes out into the wilderness with uh, nothing armed and nothing but... Oh, but, um, um, uh, Bear Grylls. Bear Grylls, yeah, Bear Grylls. Well, this, this is, again, one in the eye for Tor Heyerdahl. Here's a woman saying, can do. There's your, there's your cow, there's your milk. Aren't you supposed to do something with milk first? Is it warm milk? Say, I imagine it. Uh, I don't know. I'm not I, sure I'd want a cup of tea with... Yeah. I think people pay more for that. Uh, speaking about things in the middle of nowhere, this is uh, Andy Colignori, by the look of the name, Andy. And this is tremendous. In 1990, travelling in a bus in a deprived area of East End Glasgow, going towards Celtic Park, I passed a waste ground of demolished housing. And there, a hundred yards into it, was a stand selling hamburgers. This completely barren ground, but were buildings tumbling down, waiting the destruction, and there was a hamburger stand. The weather was vile, bitterly cold, torrential rain and hurricane-force wind. Not a pedestrian in sight. Apart from the futility of trying to uh, sell the food, there was another great crowning glory. There in the Arctic monsoon was a table and two chairs with a parasol. <laughs> As a nod in the direction of the weather, the parasol was folded and all three items of furniture were tied together with what looked like blue plastic washing line. It is one of the saddest sights I've ever seen that didn't involve a human being. Oh, isn't that beautiful? He's got his spot. Even though they knocked down the area around him, his family have been serving on that spot for 18 months. <laughs> he wasn't giving it up. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you very much oh, indeed. Lovely. Thing there, perhaps. This is from Michael. It says, the poshest thing you've ever heard. Yes, sorry I'm so late. Cause no, no, no. Who knows what, what one we were on for that. Quite a few people put it at the top. I'm sorry uh, I'm a bit late with this. You never are. There we are thrive. 50, and we hope to be around some while. But all of those from show one, if you can go back and you hear it, we're thrilled to know that people are persevering with the back catalogue. So uh, continue, Peps. My wife has just come out of one of our marvellous NHS hospitals having undergone a hip replacement. This is from Michael. Due to social distancing, there was only one other woman in the ward who had undergone the same procedure. As always, you hope not to have a nuisance or somebody won't stop talking. But this neighbour was, how should we say, very posh. Think Mrs Alice Richards from Faulty Towers. 
She also never stopped moaning. Why do I have to wear one of these? Oh, you only took my blood pressure an hour ago. Must you keep fiddling, etc.? The marvellous nurses were being very patient and giving my wife the odd wink as they passed. Anyway, when asked by a lovely nurse, uh, Mrs. Blah Blah, may I ask how tall you are? She tutted and said, I have no idea, but when in the Alps, I always ask for a 1.7 metre ski length. Does that help? (laughs) (laughs) So, I I suppose you could work it out from there. I mean, people are touchy about the old masks, and I enjoy enjoy them. I get a kick out of it, putting the mask on and ligging around, but uh, we won't get into that. Uh, But the idea you could be so sensitive, somebody says, not how old are you, how tall are you? Tall? Uh, I'm in a handbag there, Phil. A handbag? That's the style. (laughs) 1.7 when I go skiing. When I go skiing. That was some time ago, the poshest thing you ever heard. Now, this is, uh, all I've got on this is from D, because the rest of the names dropped off or whatever on there. But uh, D, thank you very much indeed. This has been knocking around a few weeks. Uh, He or she says, oh, it must be a he, because I've read it. He says, uh, I could fulfill most of your requests, especially about bad songs, but this is the one I want to share right now. When I was about six, I had the opportunity to ride in a bumper car, but only with my brother because I was too small. It was so fun, I wanted to do it again by myself, but I never had the chance. Then, when I was about 40, I went with my wife to a fair that had bumper cars. Few were there because we deliberately chose to go in would be as empty as possible. So I bought a ticket and there was no one else around. I didn't really know how these things worked, so I got into a bumper car and drove around bumping into unoccupied cars. Just me, going around on my own. My wife wanted no part of it and watched as a 40-year-old man bumped into walls and cars for no apparent reason. Then the electricity ran out and I got out of the car and me and the ticket seller looked at each other with confusion. But me, I've never felt more alive. By the way, my sister has shoes left in her 15th century attic if you need another angle, this was things of what have you found in your house. They've been left there for centuries by superstition and respect. I can send you photographs. Now, that's a lovely PS, but the idea that that's a beautiful scene in a film that he's always wanted to go around and at 40 years old, he finally did, but on his own. Which, is, which just defeats the point of bumper cars. The whole thrill Not is really. doing a quick whiz and walloping someone else's bumper car. There is that, but you know what the great thing about bumper cars is the smell. There's that smell of, of burnt electricity. Mm. That's what it is from that rod coming off the mesh above you, sparking away. And it's, it's, it's up there with the smell of used fireworks, the smell of a bumper. You know what happened to me in Ramsgate? You, you mentioned earlier you didn't bring a class action suite against the BBC for <laughs> your toenail off. Uh, how about this? How about this would have been for finding money in the street? I'm about 15 and I was in Ramsgate with all my friends on some jaunt. And we all went in the bumper cars and uh, given there was about 11 of us up from uh, South London and we was hitting each other hard. And I don't like bumper cars. I don't like that. I never think it's a good feeling when they ram into your both sides. Or when they, when they hit you from behind, it's that well, proper whiplash. This is exactly what I'm going to say. So I'm mean, there I am trying to join in, but not really. Uh, and one of my mates come up behind us and hit us at some speed. But rather than throw me forward, how about this? It sent a piece of flat metal through the seat back into my back. No! It had me in the back about half an inch in. This like a piece like a, a, a steel ruler came through and stabbed us, uh, which was 
bad enough, but I was wearing a shirt, a Mr. Freedom brown silk shirt with a white pinstripe in it that I loved. Anyway, I pulled myself off of these things and said to me, mates, don't bump me, don't bump me, I've been stabbed. And they shut the ride down, I got off, and the shirt was drenched in blood. <gasps> and they come over, the fellow, oh, what's the matter, mate? What's the matter, boy? Uh, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's culture there at the back, it's nicked. It didn't nick me, it stabbed me, right? He said, I'll tell you what, and he handed me a load of those tokens you can go on any. <laughs> Two, I cupped my hands and he put all these tokens in. He said, go on. And I thought, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I imagine that. You know, these, oh, like, now? Yeah, and I've still got, I've still got, uh, 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 whenever I tell this story, I pull up my shirt at the back and people go, oh, yeah. And I walked around the rest of the day oh. bleeding. But they don't talk to me about this fella here. Now I've just realised, D, you're getting in touch, saying he hadn't been on one for 40 years. Don't talk to me about bumper cars. We'll be right back. Good morning everybody, it's the Danny Baker Show Radiating out across the airwaves Come the sunshine or the rain, come aboard the Danny train We'll kick our slippers off and throw our cares away What better thing to do than have a jolly jape or two Don't touch that dial, there's nowhere else to go Come and join a happy session, wave ta-ta to the recession on the Danny Baker Show. Take it away, Danny. And we're back, uh, myself and uh, uh, Louise Napoleon Pepper, the great-granddaughter of Ho Chi Minh. How uh, uh, about this, Louise? It's, I think I should have done it at the top, but I got too hung up on the always fascinating subjects of revolving doors and the Contiki. Uh, Billy Burke, does the name Billy Burke uh, mean anything to you? No. Billy Burke, uh, the actress most famous for being Glinda. The uh, Good Witch in oh. The Wizard of Oz. That's Billy. Oh, her name should be better known. It should be. Well, she was. She was a tremendously, tremendously successful. Uh, uh, she grew, grew up in London and emigrated to the States. But uh, how about this? I was reading about her personal life. That's the first thing I always go to on Wikipedia. Uh, she went out with the great Enrico Caruso for quite some time, but that floundered. And she was married for a very long time after that to Flo Ziegfeld of the oh. Ziegfeld Follies. Yeah. She I never showbiz left. house. I know, yeah, it's Flo Ziegfeld, exactly. I, 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 I always thought Flo lived alone, but if you know what I mean. But uh, Flo Ziegfeld of uh, the Ziegfeld Follies was married to Billy Burke, who was Glinda the Wicked Witch. Her first hit film was called The Mind That Paint Girl. How about that for a film title? The <laughs> Mind That Paint Girl. <laughs> How many scenes in it? More than Pepe Le Pew when he used, the cat used to get a white stripe painted down it by a, uh, a careless uh, houseman. Now she was in The Mind That Paint Girl and on November the 4th, 2015, a crater on the North Pole of the planet Mercury was named the Billy Burke Crater. Oh, well, there you go. Keep your Hollywood walk of fame. What you got over there, Peps? Uh, this is the first thing you saw at the cinema. This is from David Armand. Back in the mid-1970s, my mum decided to take all the kids in our street to our local cinema in Waltham Cross to see Jaws. I was eight and one of the eldest. There were nine children and the youngest was four. After the first attack on the young woman swimming in the dark, <laughs> where you don't actually see the shark, I announced, I don't like this and I'm going home. Mum followed me out and drove me home five miles to Broxbourne, leaving the other young petrified children under a watchful gaze of a teenage usher. Top parenting. Wow. Now, at least we've heard about these. What do we hear about? Oh, the the, uh, the Dick Emery film. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a ill-advised parents thought it'd be a nice, funny film to take their kids to. And of course, well, we discussed that the other week. But Jaws, 
You would have known from the poster. You would have been... four to nine to Jaws. And I bet they sat patiently through the long speech about the USS Indianapolis as well. <laughs> uh, this is an absolute belter. This is from our friend Mike in Vista. And, uh, uh, well, it's of a, of a similar stripe, and, and like the Dick Emery one. Listen to this, Peps. By the way, uh, I'm going to tell you what subject this is. So it telegraphs what it's about. But that, for me, because I knew it, makes it funnier. It's about being the only people in the cinema. Ooh, being the only ones there, you, you, you think you might have been the only people to ever see this film. So here we go. He says, uh, Mike says, back in 1976, age 14, my friends and I were growing up in rural Buckinghamshire on a small isolated housing estate. We didn't even have a shop. The nearest town was Aylesbury, 15 miles away, reachable only by one of the five buses a day that passed through my village. Being young, pocket money funded schoolboy rock fans, buying an album was a rare enough event and chances of, chances of us ever being able to go to a concert by one was as likely as walking on the moon. On Saturdays, this would usually consist of catching the 10am bus to Aylesbury where we would happily spend the entire day mooching between the three record shops in town and also the massive Woolworths record department, gorging ourselves on album sleeves and adding titles to the ever-growing but imaginary list of albums we would buy one day. Occasionally, when funds permitted, we would go to the pictures, a small, grimy little flea pit of an Odeon at the end of the high street, where we did see Blazing Saddles and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But imagine our excitement when playing football one evening, one of our gang appeared and announced, the Led Zeppelin film's coming. The song remains the same, the Led Zeppelin film showing in Aylesbury in two weeks' time. This was incredible. Of all the bands we worshipped, there could no doubt that Led Zeppelin were at the top of the table. Had we not only a few weeks previous solemnly and seriously concurred that we would give up the little fingers on our right hand to see Led Zeppelin in concert? Well, now we would. Admittedly only on the screen, but no amputation would be necessary. This was the hammer of the gods. We were giddy. We would go several times, we decided. This was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Funds would be found, perhaps advances on birthday money begged. Odd jobs done. The news that it was showing for one day only and at 3 p.m. on the Saturday did not dampen our spirits. At least we would get to see it. But wait, what about all the other Led Zeppelin fans? Led Zeppelin play the hugest stadiums. Every rock fan in Buckinghamshire would be there. It's only on one of the tiniest screens. What if we couldn't get in? You couldn't book tickets like you can now. You turned up and paid to get in. The queues would be round the block. Within 10 minutes, we were hatching plans to ensure we would beat the thousands of Led Zeppelin fans blocking up the high street. We would get there at 10 a.m. We would take the early bus. We would be at the cinema by 11 and stake our claim at the front of the queue. But what if all the other fans did that? More panic set in. We couldn't risk it. We would get the 7 a.m. bus into town and be at the cinema by 8. This would ensure at least we had seats. And so, to the amusement of our parents, five excited 14-year-old Led Zeppelin acolytes boarded the 7am bus to Aylesbury. 45 minutes later, we were sprinting from the bus station to the Odeon. As we rounded the corner into the high street, we squinted for sight of other lads in denim and Afghan coats, and were elated to find out that we were the first there. The first! With a mixture of satisfaction and determination, we plonked ourselves down on the pavement as close to the shuttered ticket booth as we could get. If any bigger lads turn up and try to push in, we would tell them, hey, we are the first. And we waited. And we waited. And we waited. And we watched as the shops opened on the high street. Other fans would be arriving any minute by their hundreds. Why were they leaving it so late? We were the clever ones. We've got the 7am bus. 
by 10 o'clock, we'd eaten all the sandwiches we'd brought with us and still the only ones there. A terrifying thought struck us. But we've got the date wrong. We've got the date wrong. It's not today. Within minutes, we convinced ourselves that the film was on last Saturday. But no, the poster for the film was mere feet away. Today, 3 p.m. We were still first in the, when the cinema manager arrived to open the shutters and let the cleaners in. We were still first when the ticket lady arrived and opened her booth. We bought the tickets and we walked into the dimly lit cinema. We were the only ones there. We had sat on the pavement for seven hours and we were the only ones there. <laughs> we could not fathom this. Where were all the other Led Zeppelin fans? How could they not know the film was on today? Our minds were boggled. Well, two lads did come in a few minutes before the film started, but that was it. The film began and everything became clear. It was terrible. It is now a notorious dog. It was even then. But you know, word travels slow in the sticks. Mike <laughs> and Vista, isn't that lovely? Isn't that a classic? Well done, Mike. <laughs> I remember getting tickets to see John Mayle uh, in 1972 or three. So excited. We got them, got the tickets, and we turned up, all right, it's about a third fall to Rainbow when we got there. We really was crowing about this desk, and we got John Mayle. You got John Mayle tickets? You literally, they had chain mail nets outside the rainbow, dragging people in. <laughs> and John Mayle did the most desultory set and, and was annoyed with the audience. Did a sound check after two numbers that went up for about 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, it the sound. It was one of the most catastrophic nights in my rock and roll career. Uh, something from over there, Peps, what you got? This is from Paul Martin, Things in the Middle of Nowhere. About 50 miles en route to the Grand Canyon, it's a very odd tourist attraction. In the middle of the desert and an intersection of two roads is a Flintstones theme park. Oh. A 30-foot Fred Flintstone beckons you in with a huge speech bubble of yabba dabba doo. <laughs> there is no warning or signage on the highway to let you know it exists. No buildings or town within miles. So, of course, we stopped to see what it was about. We pulled into the ample car park the only car there and proceeded to part with $20 for a family ticket. Once inside, we discovered a full replica of bedrock. Fred and Barney's homes, the bowling alley, the quarry, all complete life-size characters and cars with a few rides aimed at a five-year-old. The owners insisted we take the mystery train ride to stop at a cave to watch a model pterodactyl go around a paper mache volcano. It was all terribly surreal and amateurish, but with a real passion. We had a brontosaurus burger in the cafe, browsed the gift shop, and finally left after a couple of hours. The owners did everything. Admissions, manning the rides, cooking the food, and were lovely with great fun and loads of enthusiasm. They'd been there since the 70s, and this was now rather run down in 2013. The entire time, nobody else came. <laughs> Why it was there... How did they get permission to build it? And I wonder if actually it does still exist. And that's from Paul. Where was it? What, what country was that in? Uh, it was on route to the Grand Canyon in the middle oh. of nowhere. Oh, okay. So uh, uh, on that, I was only asking, so I thought it was in South America where the Flintstones was and remains huge. Uh, because we began the uh, today's show by the skin of our teeth and with <laughs> information about the Contiki leaving Peru. Uh, and I'll end it with it. Uh, our correspondent, Adam in Rio de Janeiro, uh, gets in touch and he reminds us the other week the show was dedicated to the um, always mysterious country of Bolivia mm -hmm. yes we did we did quite a lot on Bolivia the other week he said uh, you were talking about Bolivia the other week and did you know that Bolivia officially did not exist in Victorian England 
This is what he wrote. He said, this is, he's taken this extract from somewhere and he sent us this. It was Queen Victoria who declared that Bolivia, like lesbianism, did not exist. The story was this. The Bolivian president felt insulted by the British consul. And the British consul was then tied backwards on a donkey and driven from La Paz. Naturally, when Queen Victoria heard about this, she demanded gunboats shell the city. But when she was told the de facto capital stood 12,400 feet above sea level in the Andes, she then required it to be expunged from all British maps and consigned to oblivion. And for a while, it was. Bolivia, by the way, is a lovely country. I've visited several times. Thank you very much indeed, Adam. How about that? Now, that's why, that. that's why people have killed to become king or queen. And when it, you can stand there and go, well, fine. Exactly. Erase it from the maps. Get over, get over there with Oz and Brigadoon. Uh, and so thank oh. you so much. And, and shows you again, without being patronising, the quality of the good people who join us here on the Treehouse. So uh, play the theme tune, Phil. One, two, three, four. Treehouse. Climb up, go in, let's cozy down. Wave goodbye to that silly frown as we chase our cares away. In the the fire's on, it's warm inside We guarantee you'll be satisfied As we laugh the day away In the treehouse Take it away, Daddy! Thank you very much indeed, of course, to the great Louise Napoleon Pepper, the uh, great-granddaughter of Ho Chi Minh, on the other side of town, Phil Wilding who has uh, certainly done more than enough to cobble together this show. Promise no more backstage talk from here on in, because as always, the show is chiefly yourselves. We'll see you midweek, everyone.